he thought it was like an ice cream sundae. He said, you know, you might be able to stay sober on one scoop of ice cream and a little chocolate sauce. He said, but you know, I want three scoops of ice cream. I want the chocolate sauce. I want the whipped cream. I want the nuts. But he said, most of all, I want the cherry on top. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hello, body, body. That is how my son used to pronounce the word everybody when he was very little. So that's just a little flashback for me. But anyway, hello, body, body. That was the voice of Joe, J-O-M, that you heard at the beginning of this episode, and you will be hearing so much more from her in just a moment. But first things first, this episode right here, right now, is coming out to you and brought to you by Trudy and Gerhard. Do you know what Trudy and Gerhard did? Well, let me tell youans. They went to our website, SoberSpeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow donate tab and they made a contribution. Thank you so much, Trudy and Gerhard, for your generosity. This episode is coming right out to you. I, John M., will be the chairperson for this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to serve all of you listening in. So take a seat, if you will, around this virtual table, and let's get cranked up. All right, everybody. So this time we are going to have Miss Joe M. back with us again, and uh, Joe M., When we recorded her live at the Tri-Cities event, uh, the internet was a little off. Uh, It was a little spotty at times, so I had to kind of make some edits in there. And there are some chimes, as you know, from those Zoom chimes where you hear everybody coming in and out. But the material, excuse me, I guess I should say the content was fantastic. So I wanted to go ahead and, and put that out there in the ethosphere is that how you say that? Ethosphere? I know there's atmosphere, but what's ethosphere? Anyway, I have to go look that up when I get 
off this recording after I finished the introduction. But anyway, Jo has been on the podcast before, and she is at episode 114, and it's called Joe M., My Path to God and Alcoholics Anonymous. So if you want to go back and listen to her uh, in uh, on an additional episode, feel free to go back in there and do that. It would be fantastic. So Joe has been sober for 38 years. That is since May 31st of 1982. She covers a lot of topics in this episode. Um, she's going to talk about living as a battered wife and the abuse that her children actually endured. Um, she addresses the DWI escapade that she had with law enforcement, her struggle to over to to come to believe in a power greater than herself and how slow that process actually was. And I'm sure many of you can relate to that. She talks endearingly about her sponsor, Anne, who taught her, who taught her how to be a wife and a mother. And she had a marriage in Alcoholics Anonymous that lasted for 25 years. Between her and her husband, they had eight marriages between them before they got married, married, so the chances weren't great, but they went on to live that AA life, I guess is what you would call it, and she discusses that. She talks about losing the car while drinking. You ever have that where you come out of the wherever you are, uh, the, the stadium, the bar, the restaurant, and all of a sudden you cannot find your car. I can relate to that. I'm sure some of you can. Anyway, there's much more and we will have plenty of listener feedback at the end of this episode. So sit back, enjoy Ms. Joe M. And we'll talk to you a little bit more on the other side of this episode. Thank you very much. Thank you for asking me. Um, that's really, it's always a privilege, truly. Uh, my name is Joe and I'm an alcoholic <clears throat> and I've been sober since May 31st, 1982. And I am, I'm very grateful. Uh, I'm very grateful for that. Um, you know, I, today I was thinking about often, you know, what, when I speak, you know, what will I start with? And I usually like to start with something that's current, you know, my life today. And yesterday I had my uh, 22-year-old gorgeous, brilliant granddaughter, you know, um, want to come spend time with me. And for her, her to tell me that how much she admired me, wow, you know, and, uh, and that I was just the coolest grandma, you know, and... Um, I tell you what, you can have everybody in the world give you compliments. They can tell you did a, you know, you look nice or you did a nice job or, you know, or enjoy what you had to say. And whatever she said is the most valuable, absolutely the most valuable words. Because the person that came in here, you know, she certainly never seen me drink. And the person that came in here would not have, didn't even look like that person. It didn't look like somebody who would be, would say that they uh, admired me. <laughs> Nobody admired me that, you know. Um, yeah, I started, I didn't start drinking young. Um, I was, I guess, 20, early 20s, but uh, it went out, went over a long period of time. And, and what happened was ultimately, 
I had two kids and I dragged two children through active alcoholism. So this beautiful young woman, her uh, dad was, uh, fortunately, has never told her, you know, what life was like for him. And I am so grateful for that, you know, that she doesn't know. And uh, she doesn't know that her grandmother spent the night in the Irving jail, you know, and uh, she doesn't she doesn't know any of that. All she knows is what she sees. And, uh, you know, God is so very powerful, you know, simply stopping drinking, uh, just putting the bottle down would never, ever have garnered the kind of uh, relationships that I have, you know, with my children and with my family. And I turned out and she was mom's OK, you know, and the mom is busy. And um, but what a, what a gift, you know, what a gift. I can say stopping drinking alone would never, ever have gotten that. You know, um, when they say alcohol is but a symptom, that wasn't what honestly harmed my children the most and my family. What harmed them the most is I was not present. I was not around. I didn't show up for things. I, I promised them things, and then, of course, I'm drinking, and I don't remember. I noticed once, I thought, I I think we'll go to England. Wouldn't that sound like a good idea? Let's all go to England. Okay, they get all excited. I call an airline and I get a, you know, um, a fare. And uh, uh, they're, they're just all excited that we're all going to get to go to England. Well, you know, the only way I remembered it is my son asked me the next day, hey, mom, when are we going to go to England? And I'm vaguely that little memory filtered back in, you know, and I thought, uh-oh. And it was... You know, that their whole life was like that, though. It didn't really matter whether it was something that big or something that small. And even if I was actually in the house, I wasn't present. You know, I was not there. The only thing I cared about in that house was that bottle of scotch. Nothing else mattered. Absolutely nothing else. And, you know, I was working at the time for uh, Dallas used to have two newspapers uh, at one time. And I worked for the one that's not here <laughs> and uh, that went away. And uh, But I had worked there. Um, when I got sober, I had worked there uh, 10 years, almost 10 years. And, uh, uh, you know, in my way of thinking, everybody drank. In my way of thinking, we all went out at all, whoever all is, at, to the bars after. In my way of thinking, I didn't stand out. But in their way of thinking, I did. Because everybody else got up and went to work the next day, you know, and I, I went home and drank more. And I didn't go to work for the next day, quite possibly. And so I came within a hair's breadth of losing my job. I got put on probation the day after I got sober. I got sober on May 31st, and I got put on probation June 1st. So, <clears throat> you know, all of those kinds, that kind of life that I was living, I... I didn't know how to be a mother and um you know and i got sober and um all of a sudden you know you know i've got these very two very tall people that live in my house that call me mom and um i just i, I don't know them and they don't know me because one of the things that alcohol does is it, it robs us of who we are it robs us totally of the person that we are and um and i didn't know who i was so you know, the, the, I look back on it so much um, with the newspapers. I got to be there. I got to make amends to that 
company and that I was there nine years drinking and nine years sober. So, and you know, God provides uh, amends anyway they come. So, but anyway, um, the kid's dad was in the military. Uh, he was an Air Force pilot. And um, uh, when he went off to Vietnam, uh, before he left, I decided I was going to divorce him. And I didn't tell him, however, you know, because you don't want to do that. You want to be compassionate so you don't tell them before they leave that you're going to get a divorce when they get back. Unfortunately, I just kind of even I told him, I mean, I, I had decided I just hadn't told him. So I kind of li was living my life as if I were already divorced, you know, because in my head I was. And as soon as he got back, you know, I was going to tell him. And so I was living this life with, you know, uh, going to school at, at Tech, Texas Tech. I was as far away from Dallas as I could possibly get, unless it was El Paso and my family was in Dallas. And so, you know, I, I lived a kind of life that began what the pattern of my relationship with my family and my children. I had a little boy. I had my oldest son, uh, uh, Mike, and he was um, I left him alone and he was three. You know, now I was in an apartment building. My idea was I'd run down and I'd check on him, you know, and maybe I did once in an evening because I found the drinkers right off, you know, where they were. And I found the ones that would provide free drinks. <laughs> so because I didn't have any money. And uh, and that's how, you know, my whole uh, drinking went. Everything came before my children and primarily that alcohol. And when the, when uh, Ron came back, I didn't uh, didn't get a divorce, and we ended up living in Duluth, Minnesota. You know, and uh, which can be fun if you have peach brandy and a flask and a snowmobile, and that's what we did. So we, you know, it was fun. We had a good time, and um, but you know that again, the the life, the whole life that I was living, the the interior life that I was living. I was teaching at the University of Minnesota and running around running around and um, uh, leaving the kids once again. And so I, when he went back for a second tour, I um, went back to Dallas and went to work for the newspaper. You know, I look back on those years and my children are just now, and I'm sober 38 years, and my children are just now, particularly this youngest son, the, the father of this beautiful young woman, is just now beginning to tell me how hard it was. He's beginning to tell me some of the things he suffered. He's starting to say what it was like being left alone, what it was like, you know, and I'll tell you what, you know, I would love to look at him and say, oh, it really wasn't that bad. You know, it couldn't have been that bad. And um, his older brother had confronted me when I was about 10 years sober. And, um, you know, the thing about it is my sponsor told me then you sit and you listen and you listen to what they have to say. And she, she said, it's not the events, it's the hurt and it's the pain. And, you know, and I, I know my, when my oldest son dropped his on me happened and my spot, you know, I called my sponsor, you know, and I said, he doesn't love me. And she said, oh, Joe, that's not the problem. The problem is he does love you. If he didn't love you, then he would not be hurt and he would not be so upset. 
And so, you know, I said, well, what do I do? And she said, well, go to lunch in two weeks. I said, well, he's not going to want anything to do with me. She said, just call him and see. How do they know? you know, these sponsors, how do they know these things? And so sure enough, I called him in two weeks. And um, she said, now you call him every two weeks. Because one of the things I wasn't was consistent. One of the things, you know, I promised this and I promised that and I wasn't there. And uh, so sure enough, now he calls me, well, did before all of this, but he calls me for lunch. Now, hey, mom, I haven't seen you, you know, but I have to say with him, uh, what happened with him was very, very, was terrible. And I, after I divorced the kid's dad, I was drinking in a bar in downtown Dallas. Now, I know there's some lovely bars in downtown Dallas. There's some really nice bars in downtown Dallas. I didn't drink in those bars, you know. Um, I was all dressed up in my little suit. And there was a bar right behind the newspaper called the Headliner Bar. Um this is later than me. Uh, just, it was an awful place. But, you know, people from the newspaper went over and uh, we all drank. And uh, But, you know, I drank with a whole bunch of people that would drink two drinks, maybe three, and go home. You know, I didn't know that when I drank one drink that I was not going home. I thought I had a choice. I thought that I could make a decision as to how long I would be there and what I would do. I didn't know that I didn't have a choice. And I drank there and then most of the people left except people like me and they were the drunks. And uh, and it was really a bad life, you know, but I've got two children at home now. I think of all of the things that I regret, <clears throat> you know, leaving them alone is certainly first, but it was in this terrible bar that I met him. He was really pretty. I mean, he was drop dead gorgeous. And uh, we were both inappropriately dressed for the headliner bar. He's in a coat and tie and I'm in a suit. <clears throat> and, you know, we did not, that's not what you wore to the headliner bar after everybody left. And so, you know, we were, we were introduced by the owner and five weeks later, I married him. You know, I knew everything there was to know. You know, first of all, he was gorgeous. <laughs> that was first. Second, he could fix anything. You know, he could put, and I had bicycles. It was right around Christmas that I had bought for my kids. He put them together. I'm in love, you know. And, uh, you know, we were married, like I say, five weeks from the first day to the um, time we got married. I mean, what else do you need to know? You know, and I thought he had money. You know, he was one, he'd reach in his pocket and he'd pull out the wad of money, okay? And I'm impressed because I am poor. <laughs> I do not have a lot of money. And um, so he pulls it out. I, now, it wasn't just a few hundreds wrapped around some ones. You know, there was money in there. But what I didn't know was that's all the money he had, <laughs> you know? Because he had a, an ex-wife who was after, you know, he had two or three of them. And so they were after his money. And so, you know, he had it all in cat. God only knows where it was. I never did know for sure. But, you know, that I know he drank like I did. And uh, and it was, you know, he was wonderful. He was charming. He was smart. Uh, he dressed beautifully. He was all of those things. And like I say, don't ask us why we're in the headliner bar. Sometime into my marriage to him, he decided that I was not disciplining my children correctly. And uh, these were really good kids. 
and so he said, "I I will take over." What his idea was, uh, he was physically abusive to my oldest son. And you know, I look back to the depths that alcohol can take us, and I don't know that there's any, at least for this alcoholic, that there's any lower depths that I could have gone. And I remember hearing my son cry. And I'm standing in the kitchen, and I had tried to intervene, but he was he was too um, he was he was a big, powerful uh, man. And what he would do was make my youngest son watch. Now I did not grow up anything anything looked like any like that. I, this was not a repeat of an experience, a childhood experience, or anything. I did not. I was just stunned. And then at one time later on, um, I told him he had to leave my kids alone. And so he turned in on me. And then instead of them, I became that battered wife. And the things that we all, you know, he beat me up so badly one night. I know I needed to go to the hospital, but I was too ashamed because I kept thinking, what could I possibly have done to make him do that? I knew it had to be my fault. And that is absolutely the depths that this, you know, that alcohol can, took this alcoholic. You know, it robbed me of everything. It robbed me of my family. It robbed me of any sense of self, of any self-esteem. Um, it, it took away everything. And yet I would still go back and I would pick up that drink thinking, you know, because it made me feel different. It took away the pain of living. I did not think alcohol was my problem. To me, alcohol was my solution, not my problem. And so, you know, I finally got free of that marriage and um, I'm drinking downtown Dallas, all kinds of places and some nice, some not so nice. And one night I got a DUI coming home and um, no, I didn't. I'm sorry. I, I was coming home and decided to stop at this motel bar where I drank, which was another delightful place. You can go in all dressed up and you do look different. And um, uh, I was in there um, and I looked up and I noticed I hadn't been there too long, but of course I was drunk when I got there. And I looked up and I saw these Irving police <clears throat> looking in the door. And I'm thinking, I wonder why they're here. And it never occurred to me that I had created such a uh, ruckus there in this bar, in this motel bar. Now, we're not talking the Lowe's Anato, you know, or, and uh, they had called the police on me. And um, it never crossed, sweet little me, you know, I, no, couldn't be me that they were here for. So um, they, uh, they, went, they left, but it was close to closing time. So I guess that the consensus was wait till she drives off the property, you know, and of course that's what they did. They waited till I drove off the property and, and uh, they arrested me and I was furious. I was so angry. And, you know, I, I said, I just live right over there, you know, just, you know, I mean, come on guys, you know, and uh, you know, they, if, if you've been arrested for a DUI, I don't know whether you've noticed, but they don't chat with you. You know, this is not a little, this isn't a two-way conversation. They just proceed about 
about their business and ask you these little questions and you have to touch your nose, you know, and you have, you know, and I thought I passed, you know, nobody can say the alphabet backwards. So, you know, I thought I passed and then they handcuffed me. And now I, I really am angry, you know, and I'm starting to struggle with it and I'm yelling at them. And one of the things I yelled at them was, I have been so much drunker than this. Why are you arresting me tonight? You know, I just live over there. Let me go home. <laughs> they, they just, they still, they did not say a word. <laughs> they just kind of shoved me in the back of the car, in the back of the police car and you know, and took me uh, and took me into the Irving uh, jail. <laughs> you know, I just had no. I, I, well, the other thing, of course, I said, Dude, "Why aren't you out arresting real criminals?" You know, it never occurs to me. You know, I broke the law. You know, I'm not supposed. They probably no telling how many accidents they had seen caused by drivers just like me. You know, where they had seen children hurt, where they'd seen people killed. You know, for somebody exactly like me. Probably it was still, it didn't do anything towards, you know, helping me get sober. And I think what I've often, I think about a lot, and the more I hear newcomers come in and I talk to them, because I love to hear them. And I had, uh, we take a, a, in the uh, fall, we take a meeting, I mean, I, I take a information into the uh, medical students at UT Southwestern. These are the new doctors, you know, and um, they are on their psych rotation, which fits us real well. But, you know, they're they're so young. I, You know, they look like they're 12 and 13, but they're real doctors. And it's their uh, indoctrination association introduction into Alcoholics Anonymous. And I told them a little bit about my story. And, um, and so they say, okay, then uh, did you go to a doctor? And I said, yes, I did. And... Um, and they said, well, was that what helped you get into AA? I said, no. She, you know, and the young person said, you know, well, did the doctor tell you to go to AA? He, he mentioned it as one of the options, you know, but he, didn't. he said I could go to the hospital and then go to an AA or I could just go on to AA. And I wanted a pill or a shot. And so I didn't go see him anymore. He had no answers. And uh, so they were saying, you know, what about your guilt? You know, you, you told us a little bit about your kids and what happened. Is it, it, was it the guilt that got you into AA? Was it the guilt that made you pick up that phone and, and call somebody an Alcoholics Anonymous? And I said, no. You know, she said, well, I mean, <laughs> they want to help us so bad. They really do. And so, the, you know, the guy said, well, you mentioned, you know, you almost lost your job. Was it fear for losing your job? Was that why you called a? No, that wasn't it. And they go on looking for an it. You know, what is it? And, you know, only the, the people that I'm speaking to right now who are sober know what it is. And it doesn't have a definition, you know. What it is, is it's actually the power of God. But I don't know that at the time. And the big book talks about we can... We have two choices to lead a spiritual life or die an alcoholic death. What I did not know, the it for me, was dying an alcoholic death. That I wasn't a physical death. Yet when I got sober, I did go to the doctor and I certainly wasn't in great shape, you know. And I was anemic and, you know, a number of things. It wasn't, but that wasn't, that had nothing to do with it. 
you know, I, I, I was in a bar and this thought comes to me, you can't live this way anymore. And again, I don't know that, you know, only know this in retrospect, not at that moment, that that meant that I was going to die physically. I think that it was, you know, I can believe today that it was voice of God. It was uh, some kind of uh, moment of clarity. We have all kinds of definitions for those moments. But whatever it was, it was truth. And whatever it was, it was the thing that somehow I knew it to be true. And again, it there was something that was dying within me. And I got up to, from the bar <clears throat> stool and went and called the only person I knew in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he worked for me. And um, But I knew that he drank like I drank, and I knew that he, he, didn't, he, he didn't drink anymore like that, and uh, that he was sober. And so I called Jerry, you know, I'm looking back and, and, you know, when I look back on it, and I'm sure he's thinking, oh, goody, it's my boss <laughs> on a Sunday night before Memorial Day weekend. Oh, whoopee, here's what I get to go spend my my, uh, my time off on talking to my drunk boss, you know. So, but he did, like it or not, that's what he did. And he kept me there for, we talked a long time. I remember nothing. I remember nothing the man said. And because I'm a blackout drug. So the stories I tell are about the only ones I remember because there's just not a lot others that I that come to mind. We talked, you know, he talked to me. I, 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 I said, the only thing, because I'm a blackout drunk, and this is how, you know, only in retrospect do I know how God works. I came out of that blackout enough for Jerry to tell me where the meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous was that day. He was going to a group, it's called the Alpha Group, that's not here anymore, but, um, and where and where it was, and that he would be at the noon meeting on, Memorial, it was actually Memorial Day, holiday, and he would be there. And, you know, I went home, um, I, I don't know whether I drank or not, I don't really recall, um, I had a hard time getting home because I was still, I was awfully drunk, and you know, those big orange barrels that they have around construction, they kept sticking those in front of me somewhere. <laughs> you know, it seemed like everywhere I turned, I was, you know, because they were tearing up that the road. <laughs> and, and uh, but I did get home and didn't damage the car that much that night, I don't think. And the next morning I woke up with that thought of maybe I overreacted. You know, maybe it's not really that bad. But, you know, there was something in that in that little voice that said, you can't live this way any anymore, that made me, you know, if it had just been a physical death, oh, you're going to die from alcoholism. You're going to die from cirrhosis of the liver. You know, you know what? That wouldn't have scared me at all. That would have had no effect on me whatsoever. But this other was some kind of death that somehow I, I managed to latch onto at a level that, of course, I had no clue at the time. I am only telling you, this as I see it and as I saw it as time passed. And I went to uh, my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, May 31st, 1982. And I waited and waited around for Jerry to show up. Now he was a guy that was perennially late. And so uh, of course he didn't get there before noon and I had to walk up those stairs all by myself. And um, a lady walked up to me and she said, you're new, are you? You know, 
and uh, I wanted to know how she knew. And because I, I wanted to know how she knew, and my second thought was I took a bath. So, I mean, how would she know I was, because I didn't do that often. You know, it's very hard. They say we have no willpower. They do not watch us in the morning with a hangover that would kill many people to get up. We get up, we get dressed, we get clothes on, we get in the car and we are dying. You know, you know, alcohol made me sick uh, and oh, I had terrible hangovers. But I got in the car, you know, we get in the car and I get to work. Some days I couldn't. Towards the end, I couldn't. And if that isn't willpower, I don't know what else you would call it, because it took every ounce of my will to get myself together to get out the door. So, you know, <clears throat> I went to that first meeting and this lady, you know, that came up to me and said, um, you know, you're new, aren't you? There's so much power in Alcoholics Anonymous, and it is in the smallest, tiniest little things that we never ever even dream of. There was a man there. I nearly always try to to uh, talk about Danny when I uh, when I speak, and his name was Danny Edwards. And Danny was the kindest man, and he did for me the one thing. He remembered my name, and I was blown away. You know, remembering somebody's name means that you're a human being, you're a person. All that dignity and integrity that I threw away in the bars and I threw away in that marriage and threw away in jail and, you know, and threw away in the bottle and just going, hi, Joe, how are you? It, it is, it's magic in its own way. You know, we always want some kind of, you know, big big thing and and it's just the littlest things of all and then after i'd been there he would say joe come back tomorrow we'd say we didn't say keep coming back so much you know, then come back tomorrow and you know i could handle coming back tomorrow and you didn't tell me 90 meetings in 90 days because i would have felt like i needed to negotiate well now i don't want to go 90 meetings in 90 days could I go to two meetings a day for 45 days and could that way then I go every other day and I go I mean you know I they didn't say that to me I don't know whether they figured that out they just said come back tomorrow oh so simple come back tomorrow I could come back tomorrow and when he knew me he would ask about my kids and I had to say I got put on probation the next day and of course that scared me to death I'm a single parent of two children and he would say how's that probation going and it was, you know, what did that take him? 15 seconds, 20 seconds of his time meant everything to me, everything to me, because he treated me with dignity. You know, he treated me with respect. And we lose so much of that, you know, when we're out there drinking and living the kind of life that we have, we, we lose it all. The, the power to me, you know, it's it's this meeting um, and I've had the good fortune to go to meetings in other countries and uh, on Zoom. I've been to Australia and New Zealand and Canada. You know, that's really cool. But, you know, it doesn't matter where I go. Every meeting starts with a prayer. God is invited in, you know, and I know on May 31st, 1982, you know, they started with the prayer and God was invited in. I had absolutely no idea nor did I think God cared about me one way or the other. I just didn't think that he did. And when I looked at the life, particularly allowing children to be like I had, 
I felt there was no forgiveness, you know, because I couldn't forgive me. And if I, you know, I just couldn't see, you know, we all have some one thing and it may not be the thing we withheld on a fourth, on a fifth step. But I think it's, you know, it may be that one thing that I would look back over my life and feel the most deep regret. And that is the harm that I caused them. And so it was, if it, I, I believed in God, I just didn't think he believed in me. And so to know that or have any idea that this was God, you know, I would have, I wouldn't have wanted you to tell me that and I wouldn't have liked it. But I left that meeting and went by every bar and liquor store and didn't stop. You know, that's, how can that be? You know, we talk about getting sober as being a process, but in, and of course it is. Uh, but you know, in real reality, we all have, we don't have Bill's uh, white lightning experience. But you know, my being in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was bad drunk, you know, and to leave and to go home by all of those bars and liquor stores and not stop. That was my white lightning experience. You know, how can that be? That cannot be. It can't happen. You know, there are people who go to who are, go to therapy. You know, they're they're alcoholic and they try all these things and they go day after day after day or week after week after week. And I go to one meeting, and and my whole entire life changed. You know, that was the power. And, you know, at the end of every meeting, I kind of look at the the prayers that when we when we have a meeting is that when it opens, whatever it, it depends on what it depends on where what country it is or what state it is. Most of them do open with the serenity prayer, but not all. And, you know, whatever prayer is open, God is invited in. And at the end of the meeting, whatever prayer is closed with, it's to me, it's thanking God. You know, it's thanks to God for being there. It's thanking God for his presence in the meeting. It's thanking God for the power and healing that that he had. And anyway, I that was, you know, I started on this on that journey, you know, on May 31st. Um, I, it took me really uh, a quite a while before I could say I had a genuine relief, reliance and um, any kind of relationship with a higher power. Um, I didn't like it. I didn't like when y'all talked about it. It made me terribly uncomfortable. Um, I just didn't think you ought to talk about God. You know, that was something you did in church, and I didn't go to church, so I didn't think any, this just was not the place for it, you know. I just didn't like it. And, um, you know, I had that moment, I guess we all have one, uh, where, I, and that was a few months sober, where I knew that I hadn't had a drink but I didn't want one. And I kind of knew that I did not do that on my own. But it was really a very, uh, it was a slow process. It was truly a slow process. My oldest son um, didn't want to have much to do with me. And in all honesty, I was 20 years sober before I got one of the real hugs. You know, one of the kind where they really put, because they're both, both my sons are very tall and uh and pretty big guys and um where the arms go around and they pull you to pulled me to him and hugged me instead they were you know sponsor and she'd say why would he 
And she would just, it's more or less, keep coming back, Joe, just keep going. I made amends to them, verbal, face-to-face amends to them. I went right over their head. You know, I don't think they knew. And, you know, how do you make an amend? How do you make an amend for things like that? How do you make an amend for the kind of life? You know, what she said, true, was that people, and she said, well, we hear action. We don't hear words. She said, they'll watch your actions. And over time, it is just, it's been remarkable, you know, what has changed and, and, and what the power of this program and what it can do. You know, I, I can say, I, I, the, the lady that came up to me, that was my first sponsor, and I did my fist step with her, first fist step. And, um, but there was a lady I had met, and her name was Ann Swanson. And Ann was absolutely, to me, I think, in many ways, like Jean was, I think, for many of many of you all. Ann was my, Ann taught me how to live in the world. She taught me how to be a wife. She taught me how to be a mother. She taught me how to be a daughter. She taught me, the, you know, so many of the things that I had, um, that I had no clue about. And uh, I got married when uh, about five or six years sober, and Dave and I were married for uh, 25 years, and he died uh, seven years ago. And uh, we had a we had a, a uh, an AA life, I guess you can say. And it was, uh, you know, when I look, how I ever got to that point would be really, you know, it. My track record wasn't very good, let me put it that way. And when we went to get married, <clears throat> we figured out we had something like eight marriages between us. And uh, we didn't want to tell the justice of the peace because we were afraid he wouldn't marry us <laughs> if we told him. <laughs> yeah, so we, uh, we we kind of given it. And so here we are, you know. And uh, But, you know, with the... Uh, once again, you know, I have a sponsor and, and he does too, did too. And, you know, and, and, uh, we had quite a life and it was, it was really, the end was, end was not good and it was very difficult, but, you know, so much in, in sobriety to me has really been that leading a spiritual life and what that meant, you know, the power to me once again, and is I didn't really, really believe that God had interfered in any way or that God was really, oh, well, he might keep me sober. Um, I'll give you that. But anything else was, um, I felt sure, was my doing. I, I just couldn't get that. I just had a terrible time with that relationship. But to me, the most amazing thing about Alcoholics Anonymous, I did everything that I was told to do. You know, we, I was busy in service almost from the beginning is that I didn't have to believe for God to work. And that has, I've taken that away so many times and so much power. I didn't have to believe. All I had to do was to do what my sponsor said. All I had to do was to do the things that I was asked to do. And believing in God, nowhere does does it actually say, you know, you won't stay sober unless you believe in God. You know, that's not in there. When I When I look back, you know, I am truly amazed, and it's the identification I know that kept me here. I know it was God talking to these through these people. As Danny Edwards that I love so much was um, funny man, and he was speaking. And uh, when I heard him speak, and I was newly sober, and um, he started talking about losing his car, 
And, you know, this is not a common topic when you go to work. You know, you don't sit around and chat with all your coworkers and say, you know, what did you do when you lost your car? You know, I, I looked all over for mine last night and I don't know for sure where I lived. It could have been down here. It could have been in the apartment, could have been in the bar and somebody else says, oh, yes, I lose my car all the time. You don't do that. You know, you don't go to work and tell people like that. So, you know, you think that you're the only one that has ever lost their car until you get into A. Because I did. I lost it a lot. I, just, I didn't lose it exactly. I just didn't know where it was. I know there's a fine line in there somewhere, but that, that was the way it was. And he talked about losing his car. And, you know, there was that little moment, that little click. And then he talked about his dearly departed wife. She wasn't dead. She just departed. And, you know, I mean, after I, you know, had some, you know, husband issues, I fell out on the floor. You know, I mean, I laughed from somewhere deep inside, probably for the first time in 20 years, you know, that I laughed. And it was strictly because I identified with Danny. We had nothing in common. You know, he had 25 or 30 years of sobriety. You know, he was older than I. I just, he was just a guy, you know, a kind, loving, wonderful man. And here I am, you know, and I'm just, I think it's hysterical. And another time I was getting ready to do my four step. It was a guy, many of you uh, know or knew rather was Jerry Jones and Jerry was doing the steps and he was talking about the four step. And I was, had just, was getting, was getting ready to do mine. And he, talked about having to go to one of these office supply stores you know and he had to get the right pen and he had to get the right tablet and he bought about half a dozen of everything because he didn't know which one was going to be the right one that what got me was i had just gone to the office supply store (laughs) just a few days earlier because i i don't know what you do on a four step you know so i'm clueless and i i bought at least three tablets. I bought one new fountain pen because I thought, well, maybe you do it in a, do it in, in in ink. And then I bought some ballpoint pens. And you know, I mean, because and it was like, how did he know? You know, how did he know what I just did? And here was a man at that time had at least ten or more years sobriety than I. And I want to know that I heard him speak. And so. You know, this is one of the things that it's all so spiritual. It's so much that God is at the center of all this and God working in the center of all of this. And that's what makes it all so tremendously powerful. And, you know, I went on and, you know, I did the steps and, you know, I made amends and um, uh, some of them quickly, some of them not so quickly. But uh, the power of the amends, they changed me. They didn't change any situation where I made an amend. And I got active in service right away. And um, I remember a guy that was, uh, these a lot of these people, are, they're old and dead, but his name was Gene Spivey. And Gene talked about sobriety. And he talked about it in the way that I want and still want to this day, want sobriety. He said he thought it was like an ice cream sundae. He said, you know, you might be able to stay sober on one scoop of ice cream and a little chocolate sauce. He said, but you know, I want three scoops of ice cream. I want the chocolate sauce. I want the whipped cream. I want the nuts. But he said, most of all, I want the cherry on top. 
you know, he said that sobriety, he said, I want the cherry on top. And, you know, that has stuck with me. Gosh, that had to be a very long time ago. And, you know, the things that we're, we often don't know, a little analogy that we, that we uh, impart to a newcomer about how it sticks in their thinking and how it may change an action or may change a thought or may change the way someone feels about something. And, you know, God is very, very smart. He does not let us know. <laughs> I think, wouldn't we be in an insufferable lot? Well, let me tell you, I helped 92 people just yesterday. You know, they are all now sober and, you know, and everything is just fabulous. They work perfect programs and everything's great. Now, we don't get to know and we may never know. But I think it's that belief that when we go in and we work with a newcomer and we talk to a newcomer or we talk to an old timer, you know, or we talk to... Because I heard uh, a guy, he had like maybe a month of sobriety, and I was having a really hard time. This was a number of years, a few years ago. And I was having a really hard time, and the topic was God. And, <clears throat> and the guy said, well, or belief in God, he said, I don't know. He said, what i kind of seen when, since I've been here is that my life goes better when I believe in God than it does when I don't. And I thought, you cannot be that simple. I mean, life is just, life is complicated. You know, the relationship with God is complicated. We have books on it. You can go buy books on it. We have a big book on it that has, you know, a lot of pages on it. You go read all these pages, you know, and he was just, it was just the simplicity. And I do always want to complicate things. I do always want to make them more difficult than they actually are. And, you know, when I was about 10 years sober, <clears throat> um, I got, I'd, I'd been really active in AA. Uh, I did all the things I was supposed to do. And um, I was a good little AA. And um, at 10 years sober, um, my company went away. The newspaper closed. And, you know, I was on a career path there. I mean, it was really, I was, that was my deal. Um, I, I got my car stolen. We got our car stolen from in front of the house and I fell and cracked a little bone in my, um, in my, in my leg, all of this within a very short period of time. And I made this conclusion <clears throat> from all of that, that God didn't love me. It's like, Hey God, what's the deal? Cause see, I didn't get, we hear we, well, I got, I got fired or I got laid off or my, co my company closed. And within 24 hours, I'm making four times the amount of money. You know, I've got a great job. You know, everything is fabulous. You know, it was the best thing that could ever happen to me. Well, it did not, you know, it didn't happen that way. I had a terrible time getting a job and um, it just for a lot of the circumstances. So, um, I kind of decided that the whole thing was wrong, you know, that everything that I, that God really wasn't, it goes back to the God that I brought in. And that's where I went. I walked away from God in a way. And <clears throat> I, uh, I went to meetings. I was telling my sponsor about it and she just sort of let it ride with me. And, and she said, do not say that in a meeting. You know, we will talk about it. Do not enlighten everyone with, you know, where you are. And so, you know, I would go to I would go to the meetings. I'd pass. I really had believed somehow or another. Okay, God made the you know heavens and earth, and He liked birds better than He liked me. And um, 
I didn't realize if anyone had asked me, did you believe that God is a Santa Claus? And I was said, of course not. I don't believe there's going to be a car show up on my, you, you know, uh, driveway. But I did, you know, because my sponsor kept saying, but Joe, you're sober. Well, that's not, you know, so what? What do you mean, so what? You know, I could almost take my sobriety for granted because I didn't have life working out like I wanted it. I had some hard, hard things go on. And <clears throat> you know what, what dawned on me one day is that if I walk away with from my relationship with God, I have no hope. None. And I'm back only relying on this drunk. And this is the drunk that ended up, you know, in jail in Irving. You know, this is the drunk that got into such terrible situations that her children got abused. This is the drunk. This is and <clears throat> I, I had to rebuild at 10 years sober my relationship with God. And I think it's a lifelong thing. I think it's a, a lifelong, uh, you know, step 11 says sought through prayer and meditation. It doesn't say found. And I think it is a long time seeking. Um, and what a joy, you know, I don't want to arrive in my relationship with him. I don't want to arrive. I love the line in the big book where it talks about God as constant companionship. What a beautiful concept. You know, no matter what I do or where I am, you know, God is with me. And uh, he's been with me all along. Even when I didn't believe, he had, quote, let me regardless. And best interests, always. And what I think is my best interest may not always be what God sees. But I am so grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous. It has a, a relationship with, you know, with my family that is absolutely, we Zoomed on Mother's Day, you know, which was really cool. And, uh, you know, and have a, have a grandchildren that think you're, I have one of my grandsons write up a thing that says, you rock, Grandma. <laughs> you know, and these are these are gifts from God. This is how God works and how God works in, you know, in, in this meeting today. And um, I really did need to speak. I had a little hard time getting going because I, I was all caught up in myself and what I, where I was and what I was doing. Instead of being able to share with you what I think has been an absolutely fabulous journey, that and a, a relationship with God that is uh, unparalleled uh, in my way of thinking and to know that there's more that this isn't it this isn't all there is so thank you very much for for asking me and uh, I am I'm really grateful to have been here thank you you do rock Joam and thank you for sharing your journey with us we sure do appreciate it now on to a little bit of a listener feedback for Ewan's. Now, first of all, if you are not in the Super Secret Facebook group and you would like to be, we would absolutely love to have you. I've had people ask me before, is it just for alcoholics? And I had somebody ask me last week, is it just for men? And the answer to both of those is no. It is for anybody who would want to come in there. Uh, we have a bunch of like-minded friends and family members, uh, and, and we would love to have you as well. Just send me your email associated, your email that is associated with your um, a Facebook group to John, J-O-H-N, at soberspeak.com. 
And our first bit of listener feedback today, well, it's actually a, a post, if you will, from the Super Secret Facebook group, and it is from our like I said, I don't really know what to call him. I call him our daily reflections guy. He is in there every week writing a lot of posts and he takes a quote from the big book and then he gives his thoughts regarding that post. And this one says, for those, and this is from page 34 from the, of the big book, it says, for those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop all together. Page 34 of the big book. Let me read that again. For those, like me, who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop all together. And uh, it talks about the solution in the big book if you want to go look at it. But it's that's page 34. After decades, and this is Steve's comments afterwards, he says, after decades of trying to control my drinking and drink reasonably and sanely, I know it's not possible for me. Once I start, I can't reliably predict how much I drink. And I like that, how he puts reliably. I, once I start, I can't reliably predict how much I'll drink. Then he says, my only hope at a decent life is to practice complete abstinence. I am an alcoholic. And then as he always ends up, help one, save two, happy Saturday. As you could tell, as you could tell, he wrote that on Saturday. Thank you so much, Steve. Greg writes in and he says, Hey, John, <clears throat> excuse me. Greg didn't say that. That was me saying, excuse me. But nonetheless, he says, Hey, hey, John, I live in Los Angeles, but I've been in New York City for the past three months helping care for an elderly family member. With in-person meetings moving to a Zoom platform, I've found that I can stay connected to my home group from anywhere, which is a real blessing. While the online format isn't ideal, it certainly beats the alternative and has made this pandemic bearable. I hear you, Greg. He says, I've been in recovery since May 12th, 2019, and I am grateful for each and every day. I occasionally will talk with my sponsor and fellows about the effects of the pandemic and just how fortunate I am to have a little bit of time under my belt when dealing with the stress and loneliness it has brought. Without the program, I would have been very unlike I would have been a very unlikable person during these past few months but I've been able to take things one day at a time do some work and continue to progress slowly every day I found all the guests you have on the podcast so far to be absolutely wonderful but I think the two that really impacted me and had my glasses fogged with eye humidity were I, my glasses fogged with eye humidity. Now, I've never heard anybody phrase it that way, Greg. I love it. And he says, were Brian, 
the bank robber, and Matthew M., whose story was just so touching. I agree, Mr. Greg. That's the thing that has amazed me most throughout my short journey so far. Each person's desire to so freely give and share their experience, strength, and hope. We are truly blessed to be a community of garden variety drunks just trying to stay sober one day at a time. Thank you again for your service and for putting out a message that is so important to so many. God bless Greg. That's Greg with two G's, by the way. Well, Greg with two G's, thank you so much for writing in. I'm glad we can be a part of your journey, my friend, and I'm glad it sounds like you are absolutely on the right track. Bob L. writes in. And the reason I'm stopping, I'll tell you just a second. Anyway, Bob says me, it was his, uh, the title of his uh, email was Mimi F's uh, episode. And by the way, if you're wondering which episode that is, it is titled Mimi F, Sobriety is My Superpower, episode number 148. And he said, what a good story. Mimi's English is better than yours. <laughs> Double exclamation point. And then he says, okay, mine too. Sent from my iPhone. <laughs> I guess I didn't have to read that. Bob L. So why that is uh, a little bit amusing to me is because that man, Bob L., is my sponsor. And he just as easily could have picked up the phone and called me or when we usually talk on about a weekly basis, uh, uh, tell me how much he likes her. But he decided to go ahead and, and send it a little message there. And you're right. Mimi's English is better than ours, Bob L. I appreciate it. Thanks for writing in. Love you, my friend. John writes in and he says, Hi, I am from Kansas City. When my girlfriend and I drank together and got in a fight, she left and did not come back. It was time to read the big book that I'd heard about so that I could figure out why these alcoholics kept keep hurting me and how to fix them. I went to an Al-Anon meeting to tell them how bad I had it. As you can imagine, yeah, I know what's coming next. I was encouraged to, quote, hold that thought, unquote, <laughs> and focus on, quote, my part, unquote. Yeah, I'm sure they did tell you to hold that thought. By the time I finished the book, I realized that I am the alcoholic. Wow. Oh, what a tangled web we weave here, John, huh? A twist of fate. And then he says, others can leave half of their second drink on the bar and go home. I'm on my fourth before I realize it, and I only meant to drink two that night. I'm the guy that is wondering why everyone thinks the party is over when I am just getting started. Big smiley face. My goodness, Mr. John, I can relate to that. And then he says, Powerless, powerlessness to me is that no matter what I want alcohol to be, I cannot change its chemical structure nor what effect it has on my brain. It is not a friendship helper like I always wished it was. It is a friendship remover for me anyway. 
I now have 19 months sober from alcohol, but a long way to go. So appreciative, John, of Sober Speak. You have created a juggernaut that spirals through the universe and makes good in ways you will never see. Well, let me read that again. My goodness, I really like uh, your writing there. He says, you have created a juggernaut that spirals through the universe and makes good in ways you will never see. Well, thank you, Mr. John. And you know what? By you writing in and me just putting this out there, I think you're doing the exact same thing. And I think you're doing the exact same thing by going to a meeting. And I think you're doing the exact same thing by working the program to the best of your ability. I certainly do. And he says also, David, uh, David G, when I struggled to find someone in a meeting that matched me, read what I was listening to, and I found your explanation and description of the steps to be on my wavelength. I so admire your humility, self-reflection, and willingness to do just the thing because it is the right thing to do. And I think he's talking, if I remember right, talking to Mr. David G, who we've had on many times there. And I agree uh, about Mr. David G, John, you are so correct. And he says, thanks to both of you for all that you do. Much love and appreciation, John. Well, John from John M., thank you so much for writing in. I really do appreciate it. And good luck in your journey, my friend. Keep me posted. Christine writes in from Australia. She's an Aussie. Um, and she said, crikey. And she says, Australia. She's from the near the Newcastle, near Newcastle in New South Wales. So if anybody is from near Newcastle and New South Wales out in Australia and you know somebody named Christine, you may want to ask her, hey, did you write into Sober Speak? Anyway, Christine says, hi, I listen to the podcast every night. They just autoplay over and over and over. I don't drink, but I have an alcoholic son and listening to these helps me understand him a bit more. She says, I love Jim Savage's songs. I have the two recent live events and I have saved them and I listen to his two songs on each all the time. Does he have songs on other podcasts? Could you please add me to the Super Secret Facebook group? Thank you. Keep up the good work. Well, we've been having a little problem with your email, as you know, Christine, and we're trying to get you in there. We're going to get you in there to the Facebook group. But in terms of uh, Jim S's uh, songs that he plays on the beginning of the the two, the, the most recent live events that we have, I directed you to him. I'm not sure if he has uh, other uh, uh, songs available, but they're they're actually not on the podcast, but I do know he has uh, some other songs. I just don't know where to, to find them. And as you know, I got you in touch with him. Jason writes in, you know what Jason says? He says, John, I listened to several segments on your podcast today. I am recently back into the program two years sober and a four day bender two weeks ago that I am ready to put behind me and use as experience. Good way to look at it, Jason. 
And uh, he says the terms, quote, fit spiritual condition, unquote, and daily, he has that highlighted reprieve, now now resonate in my core as opposed to just on an intellectual level. My new sobriety date is September 9th of 2020. Thanks for all your work on the podcast. It has been an incredible resource, and I'm so grateful to have been guided to your site Have a great weekend in fellowship, Jason B. Well, thank you, Jason B., for writing in. I do appreciate that. And we have some DMs on the Instagram. And the first one comes here from Blair on Instagram. She says, thank you for your service, John. I have listened to all your podcasts and even some more than once. I am sober nine and a half years. Thank you, Blair. Jackie writes in on the IG and she says, John, love your podcast. Just discovered them last week in their manner from heaven. Take care from California. <laughs> Thank you, Jackie. Uh, gosh, what to me, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, as you know, uh, is my manner from heaven and you guys as well. But that's a good way to phrase that manner from heaven. I love it. Rodney writes in on the Instagram. And he says, John, thank you for your great service. I love the podcast. It is definitely my meeting between meetings. Thank you, Rodney. And that folks is a wrap for the week. I think I'm going to be back next week. As I always say, one week at a time. God bless you all. Keep coming back. It works if you work it.